The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. I am really excited to jump in this text, so let's uh, go before the Lord and ask for his help this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the special morning that we've had together already, that your spirit is here. You've been accompanying us as we have walked through the liturgy, being reminded of who you are and your glory and your splendor, how there's no God like you, how that we've, we've come to see the brokenness and the neediness of self, that our sin has uh, debilitated us, crippled us from walking in your ways, and, and we come to, to Christ for our forgiveness and for our right standing before you this morning. And now, Father, we want to sink our teeth into your word and be fed and nourished in the word. And so would you feed our souls this morning? Would you, would you use me, uh, a humble servant of, of your word, to do so this morning? That the Spirit would fill my mind with your thoughts and speak through my tongue so that the saints could be ministered today, but also that, that those who are far off from the Lord might be brought in. Father, um, we long to see your glory this morning. Would you, would you show that to us? Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, we've been going through Exodus. Um, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entire book of Exodus. And we are actually coming up on the tail end of this. We've got about four or five weeks left in the series. Can you believe that? Um, and after this, we're, we've got plans to go right into a new series um, called Hard to Believe. And I just want to give you a little, little preview of this because I think this is really an important series for us as a church, especially as we think of ourselves as missionaries. In this series, Hard to Believe, we're going to take six weeks to tackle some of the biggest ob- uh, obje- objections to Christianity. Um, some of them are, is, is Jesus really the only way to God? Um, Another one is, hasn't science disproved Christianity? Questions of the same nature. And and what this series is meant to do is to twofold. One, it's to equip the church, the the missionaries of the church, to be good missionaries, to be able to engage with our friends and our family who who maybe wrestle with these questions on a a profound level, and to be able to help you engage in conversations of of the evangelistic nature or of the apologetic nature, so you can defend the faith um, well, but we also want to um, engage with skeptics and non-believers, maybe those same people who are wrestling with these questions. And so, this six weeks is really designed for them, right? We want to we want them to be able to come in and hear their argument well presented, and also the counter argument of what gos- the gospel says about that and Christianity. So, um, I want you to kind of be thinking about that. Who could I be? inviting to come in with this? Who do I need to be, be praying for as the series unfolds? Um, and, and so that, that this would be beneficial for all of us as the church and for those who are not yet part of the church. Uh, so that's not until June. I just want to give you a little snip, sneak peek of that. Um, but today we're going to continue our way through the Exodus story. And we come to a passage today that reveals the most important thing about life. Right, this shows us the aim of human existence. The one thing that can satisfy us even when we have nothing else and without that one thing, we're incomplete and completely unsatisfied even when we have everything else. Now our culture has strong opinions about what that thing is 
And it really depends on who you ask. Some might say that it's health and wellness, right? All we have in this world are our bodies, so we need to take care of them. We need to look good, feel good, live a good life. Others might say it's your career or money, which you find at the end of a good career, right? To find your calling in life, be good at it, get paid well, and enjoy the benefits that money brings. Others might say, well, it's, it's family and friends. Money might, you know, you, you might never have enough money, but you'll always have your family and friends. So they say, well, that one thing that we have to have and protect is our family and our friends, right? Because they are certainly dear to us and they are meant to be cherished, but they are not that one thing. It was interesting as I was wrestling with this question, what is the, what is the one thing that we have? What is the most important thing? I found this article from the Huffington Post um, from a couple years ago and, and the author of this article completely slashed all of this, these things. It's not money, it's not family, it's not your health, it's not your job. But here's what she said. She said, the one thing that's most important in life is self-esteem, to feel good about yourself. She says, what, what you have to do is you have to go through life. You have to be, the thing that you need in life is to be able to accept yourself for who you are and feel good in your own skin. Now, while this author was right to dismiss all the other things, self-esteem, while it is, it's one of those things that's very alluring, and, and really, Oprah preaches it, Dr. Phil preaches it. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, that our culture says, this is it. This is what you need. You need to be happy in your own skin. But the Bible says something completely different. The Bible says it's not self-esteem. In fact, there's things about ourselves when we actually examine our hearts that we ought to be repulsed by. There are things that we don't just accept and say, oh, this is the way that I am. There's things that we need to, to reject. So while this, the Bible has quite a bit to say about this one important thing in this topic, our passage today makes this explicit. You see, the Bible actually begins and ends with this most important thing. And here in Exodus 33, we get to see a glimpse of it. And that thing is, the thing that we need most in our lives is to be in the presence of God. This is the one thing that when we have it, it eclipses everything else in our life. And when we don't have it, we're left unsatisfied and wanting. So the question is, if, if, if the presence of God is the most important thing in our life, the most important question that we could possibly ask is, how do I enter into God's presence? And the answer to this question, it's simple, but it's not easy because of the condition of our hearts. See, God is holy and we are sinners. And there, there's a compatibility issue there that God as a holy God cannot tolerate sin. Therefore, we cannot be in the presence of God in our current condition. See, this is a, a major problem. If our chief end, if, our, if the aim of our existence is to be in God's presence, to, to enjoy God and glorify him forever, then that's a huge issue. So what I want to do today as we look through uh, the story of the Israelites in Exodus 33 is show us how sin disrupts the presence of God in our life. And secondly, I want to hopefully, with deep joy, want to show you how God's presence can be established in our lives, even as we continue to sin. So if you want to open up your Bible or your app, 
Um, if you don't have a Bible or an app, there's a Bible probably at your feet somewhere. You can grab that. That's our gift to you. If you do not own a Bible, you can take that home with you. Uh, and while you're turning to Exodus 33, it's right at the front of the Bible. Um, I want to just bring you up to speed for those of you who maybe are just jumping in with us. Up to this point, what we've seen in Exodus, it's been, it's been a crazy story. But here's the highlights. That God has delivered his people, who is called Israel, from Egyptian slavery. And once God had delivered his people in Exodus 15, they have this huge worship service. Um, They worship God. They they devote themselves to God. And in this sort of beautiful expression of thankfulness and joy, God and his people make a covenant together. They make an agreement that God would bless and sustain his people as as he brought them into this promised land if God's people would obey his commandments. And God laid out all of the commandments, 10 commandments and beyond. Um, and, And all the people agree to this. They say, yes, we're in. We want God to bless us and to be with us. But in Exodus 32, what we looked at, the passage we looked at last week, while God is up on the mountain with, uh, uh, with Moses, writing these laws in stone for the people to keep and to have as a treasure, he's making plans for his glory to move into their camp, for God to literally move in right to them next door, to dwell with them and be with them. But while this is happening up on the mountain, down below at the camp, because of the corrupt hearts of Israel, they turn from God and they make a golden calf to worship as their new God. See, this is not a, a highlight in Egypt, or excuse me, in, in Israelite uh, history, right? If, and I think for, for that to be, th- chapter 32 of Exodus, to be devoted to this story of how God's people turned from God and, and they built this golden calf, this speaks the validity and the truth of the scripture. See, if I was to document my own personal history, right, I would not include such a sore subject, right? You probably wouldn't either. You wouldn't want to do that because Israel looks like a fool in this picture. And so in this, and certainly it was foolish for Israel to do such a thing, but when God sees what's going on, he's very displeased with this. He tells Moses that I'm going to go down and I'm going to destroy everyone who has turned away from me. And Moses convinces God to relent from destroying the people. But Moses goes down and he freaks out on the people, right? He comes down and he he smashes their idol. He grinds it up, throws it in their water, makes them drink it, right? Crazy pastor at the moment. And he calls the people to come and repent, to turn back to God, to turn away from that idol and to turn to God. Now, this thing in itself, for the people to turn away from their idol and to turn to God itself is a miraculous event because we're told in the last chapter that the hearts of the people are always set on evil. And so for God to intervene in such a way that that gives his people this, this softened heart to turn away from their idolatry and turn back to the one true God is such an evidence of God's grace. And and so really the thrust of last week, to give you my sermon synopsis here, is that for those who repent of their sin, Jesus takes the punishment. That Jesus puts himself under God's active wrath so that they would not have to. Just like Moses went to God and said, hey, take me instead of them. Jesus did that for us. But here's the thing. Even after repenting of their sin, even after they've turned back toward God, there are still consequences of sin to deal with. 
where chapter 32 deals with the punishment of sin. Chapter 33 deals with the primary consequences of sin. And it's helpful to see the difference between punishment of sin and consequences of sin because there are two different things. So we have to see that the only fair punishment for sin is death. That's the only punishment there is for sin. Whereas consequences of sin can come in various forms. But primarily, as our chapter or our passage will show us, it primarily reveals itself in damaged relationships. See, this is what's going to happen with God and his people, that this relationship that they have is going to be strained, that, that God is, and his people are going to be on the outs. And when you understand the sweetness, like if you were to be Israel and you were to understand the sweetness of that relationship that they have with God, this would be a huge deal. And so that's where we're, we're going to head. If you want to go to, to look with me to Exodus 33, we'll start with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the, up out of the land of Egypt to the land in which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. See, what God is doing here is actually pretty interesting. He's offering his people everything that they want. He's giving them the promised land. He's going to send an angel to take them to the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to drive out their enemies. He's going to give them military success. God's going to give them the land that's moving ready so the people won't have to fight a single battle that God's just going to clear them out for them. They're going to have prosperity in this land. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. See, milk is a basic need that people have, right? We need, we need milk. It's a basic thing. But this honey thing, it's sweet, signifies prosperity. So God's going to give them a land, that economic stability. Now for the people who have been homeless and wandering in the wilderness for the last three or four months, this sounds awesome, right? It's what they've been waiting for. This is the equivalent of, of God offering the American dream, that everything that these people were aspiring to in life will be theirs. Now, I want you to notice here for a moment, when we're talking about the consequences of sin, notice for a minute what God didn't do. God could have said, hey, I'm going to make your life really, really hard. He could have left them to wander around in the desert forever, just like their hearts had wandered away from God. See, God was under no obligation to bring these people into the promised land, let alone make it easy for them. See, God, even though the people have rejected him, have turned aside, God is still going to hold up his end of this promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's a, a but here. There's a catch. God is going to give all of this to them, but if you keep reading in verse 3, he says, go up to land flowing with milk and honey, but... I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. See, God says he won't be going with them. He won't, 
he, he won't be going with them. So he's going to give them all the presents. He's going to give them the gift of the promised land, but the people will not have the presence of God. Now this is, this is significant because for the first time in this Exodus story, this will be the first time that God's people have not been in the presence of God. See, ever since God delivered his people from Egypt, his presence has been undeniably with them. First in the demonstration of his power by destroying the most powerful military in the world at the Red Sea and consuming them. God did what was impossible for Israel to do for themselves. And then, then God offered direction and guidance for them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The pillar of cloud by day giving them uh, shelter from the sun, blocking out the sun as they made their way through the desert. The, the pillar of fire by night giving them warmth and, and security as, as they go through the cold nights of the desert. Always knowing that God was there with them, leading them forward. See, God's presence was like having a Siri who's never wrong. He proved confident in where, the people were confident in where God was leading them because he was always with them, taking them exactly to where they needed to be. There was never a doubt as to which way they should be going because God was clearly in front of them directing their path. See, God's presence also offered assurance. It's like being buddies with the Hulk, that, that you walk into the room with Hulk, nobody's gonna mess with you. See, God was that presence, that assurance that the people who were out in the wilderness weren't going to mess with them. And if they did, it wasn't going to end well for those people. See, God's presence also offered this comfort. Like a, a, a little kid's blankie, right? To assure them that even in the darkest, coldest of nights, that they were never alone. See, Psalm 23, the psalmist kind of recounts this assurance of having God's presence. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. See, all of these things are pieces or, or are benefits of being in God's presence. And we could talk about more, right? You could talk about God's pr provisions for them and, and the food and the water that he provided in the wilderness. We could talk about the wisdom that God gave to the leaders to create a leadership structure that would allow people to flourish. But superior to all of these benefits was the relational intimacy that Israel had with God. See, this, this relationship, this deep relationship that they had satisfied their deepest longings. It was an intimate relationship, that of a relationship of the dearest of friends, as verse 11 expresses. Just take a look. This, is, this just gives us a snippet of what it was like for Moses to be in God's presence. Verse 11 says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, when, when Scripture is explaining this, it's not that God and, and, Abraham, and Moses were face-to-face -face like Abraham looking God in the face, but more a figurative thing, that God, and, God knew Moses, and Moses knew God. There was this intimate relationship that they had together. And, and Israel shared in that relationship via Moses. Now, perhaps you've, you've had a friendship like that. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's, it's an old friend. Right, someone who you can sit down with for hours, just catching up, laughing together, enjoying one another. 
someone that you can call up when things are, are rough and, and life is hard to cry on their shoulder. Maybe it's somebody you can, you can share your exciting news with and know that they'd be genuinely happy for you and not, not the, the least bit jealous. Right? It's somebody that you can open up your heart to, to share yourself with, someone that you can know and be known by. These are the kind of, these are the kind of relationships that we need. Right? If we are to be disciples, we need to open up ourselves to one another. And as sweet as these friendships are, they only pale in comparison to what God's people can experience in relationship with him. See, in Psalm 116, the psalmist says, in your presence, in your midst, in your relationship with God, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you know what this means? That the best part of our day is when we are in God's presence. And I think what this looks like, at least one piece of what this looks like, is when we sit down every day with our Bibles open, right? Which to open your Bible is one way of looking face to face with God, to look at his word, the word looking back at us. It's to yield our hearts to God in prayer, to open up a dialogue to God and let him speak back to us as we speak to him and let the spirit speak to us through his words in scripture. See, it's where you take your hand and you place it in his just like you would a dear friend and say, hey, I'm, I'm ready to go with you wherever you wanna go. And you know what happens when we do this, when we have this sort of intimacy with God? Psalm 16 says that we find joy and pleasure. Right? The byproducts of this intimate, deep relationship with God is joy and pleasure. Now this is the state that you and I were meant to live in. Right? We were meant to be People, creatures that are, are, are satisfied with deep joy and deep pleasure. This is why we crave joy and pleasure so much and, and really why the things in our life that we pop up, the, we try to find joy and pleasure in those things, yet they leave us unsatisfied. See, that's because God created us to be in his presence always and to experience joy and pleasure that can only come from him, the true joy and pleasure that can only come from him constantly. See, this is what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. That's what made Eden so good. It wasn't, it wasn't that everything was beautiful and, and animals didn't eat them, right? The thing that made Eden so sweet was that they were in the presence of God at all times. They had this unrestricted access to God that day in and day out they could walk with God in the cool of the day. Now, what's interesting here is that in a way, if we go back to chapters 25 through 30, what God is doing, he's making plans to get his people closer to Eden by building the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was meant to be a place where God's presence would be permanently, that wherever that went, wherever God's presence went, the people went with them. This tabernacle was meant to give them access and intimacy to God so that God could be near to his people. And see, the thing about this, with the genuine relationship to God, that it, it resonates with us so deeply, it resonates with Israel so deeply in the bellows of their heart that it gave them something that nothing else could possibly give them. 
right? It spoke to the core of their identity. Now, you can hear this identity language come up in Moses' words in the second half of verse 16 where he says, is it not with your going with us? He's speaking to God. Is it not with your going with us in your presence that makes us distinct? You see, God's presence is what gives Israel their identity. Without it, they're just like everybody else, right? That's how deep and profound this relationship is with God, See, without God and that relationship, Israel is just like every other people in the world. But the thing is that sin ruins this relationship. It breaks it, it fractures it, distorts it. Because of the people's great sin in Exodus 32 with the whole golden calf incident, their identity-giving relationship with God is now strained. See, where God wanted to initially just wipe them out, right, obviously a little strained, um, there's still definitely a lingering effect of their sin against God. Where they rejected the relationship that they had with God for a relationship with a piece of metal. Now, when when I was thinking through that this morning, when I think about the things that keep me from God's presence, it's usually time-wasting distractions, right? Like a, a piece of metal. I've got the word of God. The word of God is on this piece of metal here. But instead, social media and news and, and current events and what articles and whatever keeps me from turning to God and being in his presence. It's just so interesting. When you, when you put it up like that, right, the people really aren't that crazy to have a piece of metal distract them from the presence of God because we do it all the time. But but God's people, Israel has rejected God. They've turned aside to smaller things. And in doing so, they've been searching for a new identity that really will only bring them heartache and anguish and leave them on the verge of an identity crisis. See, in worshiping the statue of the golden calf, that they have become stiff-necked themselves. Now, this sort of Dismissal of God is a big deal. This kind of betrayal cuts deep where God is deeply offended by such unfaithfulness. Like I said, his initial response in Exodus 32 is to wipe them out on account of their outrageous sin. But God relents from his destruction, but the relationship isn't the same. See, now where God's people could see that God was with them in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and see that God was with Moses up on the mountain, now there's a change here. And you can see this change in verses 7 through 11 as Moses describes the temporary tent of meeting. This, this tent of meeting here that's described, this isn't the tabernacle. Right, that God has told Moses to build in previous chapters that hasn't been constructed yet. This is just a little uh, hodgepodge of, of tent that Moses puts together to meet up with God. Now see here in verse seven, look. He says, now Moses used to take, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, if did you pick up on that, like where the tent is, it's far off from the camp. It's outside of the camp. It's out, out there. It's in the distance. 
See, the physical distance of this tent that Moses sets up signifies, represents the distance between God and his people, right? This large chasm that's there because of their sin. Verse 8 continues to go on and expresses, uh, uh, check it out. When Moses had entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent where the Lord would speak to Moses. Oops, I, I read a different verse. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up at each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone out into the tent. See, now there's an exclusivity here. Right before we saw Moses and the elders, we saw the people gathered at the foot of the mountain, and now it's just Moses who goes toward God. There's a limit, there's, there's a restricted access that now only Moses goes. And what you see is that when Moses leaves the tent, that Joshua goes and he guards the tent from keeping anybody else from going in there. Right? Nobody else has access. There's restricted access. Verse 9 continues. I read it once already, so I won't read it again. But what we see here, that when Moses goes into the tent, it's then when God comes down. See, the presence of God is no longer uh, like a steady stream. It's no longer consistent. It's sporadic. See, God comes and goes. The presence, the felt presence of God comes and goes. It's only when Moses is in the tent that God comes down to his people. Now, if you think of these three things, right, you notice where the tent is, the exclusivity, the, the restricted access, and, and the sporadic nature of God's presence, and you contrast that to what God had planned with the tabernacle, it's, it's alarming. Because God's plan, what he, he is planning to do with his people in the tabernacle, was to move in permanently, to be in the center of the camp. Right, right dab in the middle that all of the tribes of Israel would, would camp around the presence of God at the tabernacle. See, instead of being exclusive, the tabernacle was meant to be a place where all people had access to God, to come into the courtyard of the tabernacle and worship and offer sacrifices and be near to God. And instead of being sporadic, God's presence would always be there in the Holy of Holies upon the Ark of the Covenant. See, God had plans to, to not be shady like that, but it's because of the sin where people are distanced from God, where there's that limited access. See, sin had messed things up royally, and now God is saying to his people at the end of verse three, as you go forward, I, I can't go with you. Right? And really it's for protective reasons because uh, the second half of verse three says, uh, God's saying to them, I, I can't go with you because I might consume you at some point along the way. That it isn't safe for a sinful and rebellious people to be in the presence of God. Right? This is that compatibility issue that I was talking about. The God is a consuming fire of holiness and all that is unholy will be devoured We need to realize that there's a danger of being in God's presence. That if we come unclean, that if we come in our sinful state, that we will be undone. You see, Isaiah the prophet who comes later on in the Old Testament, he, he gets a chance to see God's glory. He sees God's glory and you know what he says? The first thing that comes out of his mouth, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. 
He knows. He sees God's glory, and he knows that he is unqualified to be in the presence of such a holy God. So a cherubim comes, and he takes a hot coal, and he presses it to his lips, and he says that this is for your atonement, that something had to happen to Isaiah to atone for his sins in order for him to enjoy the presence of God. You see, the same is true for us. It's the same is true for Israel. Something had to happen to account for their sinful condition so that they would not be consumed, right? Otherwise, if they were to go with God, they would not make it far. Before we look at what that is, what God had to do, we need to take a look at how Israel responds to this proposition that God makes, right? He's, he's essentially offering them the American dream without the God strings attached, right? Will they take it? Will they bite on it? If they do, right, this exposes that they're just using God as a means to an end, that really what their heart is set for, their hopes, their longings are really for this promised land and not really for God. I think this is a very revealing scenario of the heart condition of the people. It's to show us where their love really lies, what their hope is in. Now, I think, I think that there are many so-called Christians who might take God up on this deal, right? Who might take the, the promise of the American life without the God strings attached Right, the car, the house, the family, the job, the ease of life, the reputation, the power, the comfort that these things can bring, all without God. You see, I think, I think people would take, take God up on this offer if you made it. And that's because this is the prosperity gospel. This is America's gospel that so many people are enticed by because they see the good in the gifts, but not in the giver. What happens here in this version, false version of Christianity, is that God becomes a means to an end and not the end all be all. See, this, this false version of Christianity shortcuts the deep and intimate, intimate relationship God wants with his people. It reduces God to some sort of magic genie that God will give us what we want but because Israel had such an intimate relationship with God, they had tasted the sweetness of this relationship. The removal of his presence was a deal breaker. See, when God says he isn't going with them, this is very troubling. Look at verse four. He says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. See, they mourn over this disastrous word. This, this isn't like, oh man, I guess we'll deal with it here moving forward. This is a deal breaker. In verse five, God says, okay, if, if that's how you feel about this, show me, show me how you really feel about me. Put away your jewelry and your ornaments. Right, and, and there's a significance here. What, what God is asking them to do is to dissociate with their previous identity, the false identity that they would have had in Egypt. See, when they were in Egypt, these gold jewelry, the bracelets, the earrings, the headpiece, the necklace, whatever it was, these things were a sign of, of, of affluence, a sign of, of their identity. And so God's saying, if you really want me to be with you, you have to put all of those things away. 
Strip yourself of these things to make room for me. And Israel, like this, this here is a bright moment in the life of Israel. They realize the surpassing worth of being near to God and they strip off their jewelry and never wear it again. What they're saying to God is that you are our source of identity, that this relationship is defining to us, that you are the most valuable thing to us. And so the people of Israel are willing to trade everything that they have. They're really willing to, to leave behind the promise of the promised land if it means that they can be in God's presence once again. Here's the thing. Israel knew that even if they had everything, they would have nothing if God wasn't with them. That even if they had everything, they would have nothing if God wasn't with them. See, this is the kind of heart that God wants to produce among his people. For his people to cherish God above all things, to be satisfied in him so that we turn from our false hope, our false identity, and our fleeting comforts. And so that we would say, I don't want to be a part of anything if it takes me away from your presence. Let me ask you, have you experienced God in this way? Is the presence of God in your life supremely valuable to you? So that you could say, yeah, God, you could take away my job, take away my house, my lifestyle. You could, you could even take my family from me. But if I have you, I have everything I need. See, if you can say that, praise God, because that is an evidence that you have had an authentic relationship with God, that you have tasted it, right? And even if you, even if you have a desire to say that, right? Because that's a hard thing to say, that I'd be willing to trade everything in my life just to have you, God. But if you can't say that, here's, here's my theory, is that you have not yet seen the infinite value of what Jesus has done to give, you, to, to give you access or to bring you into relationship with God. And I'm praying that as we come to a close here that you will see that. Because Moses here in this passage, he gives us a foreshadowing of what Christ has done for us to restore us to relationship with God. In verse 12 through 16, Moses is pleading for God. He's begging God to not remove his presence. He's interceding for the people. See, at the heart of this, Moses is praying that God would make a way for this relationship to be, to be amended. So Moses has a bit of a monologue here from from. Uh, Verses 12 through 16. He lays out reason after reason why they need God to be with them. Verse 12, he says, well, who will lead us? Right? We, we have an intimate relationship with you. You know us by name. Verse 13, he says, remember, hey, we're your people. 
Verse 14, he says, well, God, remember, you promised to be with us. Verse 15, he ends with this identity language. This is, this is so important here. And, and Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how should it, shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, what Moses is saying here, without you, God, we are nothing. This whole petition that, make, that Moses makes is all about God making a way to not withhold his presence from his people, but to let them in. And Moses knows, he knows that their sin has disqualified them from such a thing. That that they're not qualified to be with God anymore, but that does not stop him from asking boldly. After this four-verse monologue, God obliges in verse 17, he says, and the Lord said to Moses, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then, taking the advice of Charles Spurgeon who says, look upon your past petitions as the small end of the wedge, opening the way for larger ones. Moses asks God something even bigger in verse 18. And Moses said, please show me your glory. See, Moses didn't just want God's presence to be felt. He wanted to see the glory of God before him once again. See, this is what happens when you experience the presence of God, that you want to be taken deeper and deeper into that until you can see the glory of the Lord before you. That's the great paradox of of the Christian faith here, that the presence of God profoundly satisfies us, and at the same time, it stirs within us an, uh, an even larger, powerful longing to go deeper and deeper into it. And again, God graciously answers Moses' request in verses 19 through 20. He says, and he said, I will, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. See, all of God's goodness will be in plain view for Moses. God is going to flex his sovereignty here. He says, I am capable of showing mercy to those who I desire to show mercy to and grace to whom I desire to show grace to. This means that grace and mercy will find those who it's intended for. Guys, this is an assurance for us that nothing is impossible for God that he can make a way for even the most wayward of sinners to bring them into his presence. He says, but there's a, a but here again, verse 20. He says, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but for my face shall not be seen. So to keep Moses safe, he can't literally see God's face. 
but God is going to still show him his glory. He's going to make provisions for him, take him and tuck him into that rock and, and still pass by him. Now, all of this, all of this chapter here points us to Jesus from Moses' intercession to the, our need to be restored to God to the peace of, of seeing God's glory. It's all about Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who intercedes for, ourself, or for us as we find ourselves in sin, whether it's the first time or the millionth time that Jesus is petitioning before the Heavenly Father, have mercy on him. See, I think this is to see Jesus as our intercessor, the one before God on our behalf. This is incredible because it's not just that Jesus is making petitions for us for the first time that we come to faith in God, but day in and day out, Jesus is next to the Father saying, Father, do not look at their sin for my blood has covered it. The little sins that we experience day in and day out, or that we participate in willingly day in and day out, Jesus says, no, 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 Father, remember, I, I've made a way for them. Look at my blood. In Hebrews 7, verse 25, Jesus he speaks of this here. Let me flip. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. That Jesus' permanent job right now, until inter the heavens, new heavens and new earth comes, Jesus is interceding for us. He's pleading that God's people would experience the grace and mercy that they need to, to be in his presence. Now, verse 25 of that Hebrew 7 passage, it's interesting that, that it also shows us that how we are restored to God. It says, consequently, he's able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. See, it's through Jesus that God restores us to himself. Hebrews 7.27 continues that he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for first for his own sins and then for those of the people. But Jesus did this once and for all that he offered himself up. See, Jesus is the way, the sacrifice, the, 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 at the atonement for us to make our way back into God's presence. That we are cleansed of our sin, that we are counted righteous, that we have access to God as sons and daughters. And here's the thing, it doesn't happen because of our good works. We didn't prove ourselves to God and then he goes, oh yeah, I'll bring you in. No, no, no. This is because God has showed us grace and mercy. And for that request to see God's glory, God answers that. He says, if you want to see my glory, look to the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, that the fullness of God was put in flesh that lived among us, was died for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, for God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the glory of God that we're looking for, the fullness of the glory is in Jesus Christ himself. And so if we want to see God's glory, we look to Christ. See, and when you see what Christ has done, what you see 
how you see Jesus has laid himself down for you, that he has put himself under God's wrath, that he is interceding for you to reconcile you to God, that he is your assurance that God will not leave or forsake you because you have been united with Christ. That makes so much sense of what goes on here with Israel, where they say, we can lose everything else, but give us God. You see, I pray that this happens for us as a church on, on an individual level where we are daily reminded of our need for Christ to intercede for us, to make atonement for our sins, that we can turn to him and trust in him and put our faith on him and be brought back into God's presence and to be with him and enjoy him forever. But what I want us as a church to pray for is this happening on the larger scale, right? What we see here in Exodus 33 is maybe the first example of renewal in the history of the church, right? Where a mass of people realize their need for Jesus, that they have been shown their sin and they repent, they turn away from it and they turn to God and there is this revival that happens, Friends, I'm praying that we would be on the forefront of revival here. In our cities, in our neighborhoods, that we would see people, lots of people, not for the sake of this church, no, 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 for the sake of God's kingdom, come to faith in Jesus, to see him as the intercessor, to see him as atonement for their sin, and to be so deeply satisfied that they say, we don't need anything else but Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus and how he was the better Moses. That where Moses's, his intercession was good and it got the people where they needed to go and, and, and you heard it, he is not Jesus. He cannot do that for us, that we need Jesus as the better intercessor. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to see that it's, that it's because you are pleased with the mediator that you have rescued us, you have delivered us from our sin, you have removed us from underneath the wrath of it, and you've set us in your family as sons and daughters. So Father, I pray that within us you would grow a deep contentment, a deep satisfaction, a deep joy and delight in who you are and what you've done so that we can say and mean it, you can take away everything else but give me Jesus. Father, that's our prayer this morning and we come to receive Christ this morning at the Lord's table to take his body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed to forgive us of our sins and we're reminded of his work on the cross, but we're also transformed that as the spirit works in this meal that we are transformed from the inside out as this is a means of grace for us to become more like you, to be more satisfied in you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.